0: take a copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20. Uh, Luke chapter 20 verses 19 through 26. Um, In this passage, Jesus talks about politics and religion, uh, two things that we're not supposed to talk about, especially together, Uh, but Jesus does here, and as we uh, listen to him, I think he's uh, got a lot to teach us about our duty to both God and government. So let's hear what uh, Jesus has to say here. But before we read the text, let's pray once again and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant grace to us in Christ. And we need your grace now. Uh, I need your grace to... Preach with clarity and conviction and carefulness, and we all need your grace to hear and receive. So through Jesus Christ, give us grace. We ask this in his name. Amen. Luke chapter 20, picking it up in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is another conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. If you look back in Luke chapter 20, uh, you'll see that the chief priests and scribes have already come to Jesus asking him a question about his authority jesus what what gives you the right to march into the temple and flip over tables and drive people out with a whip? And Jesus responded to their question with the question about the baptism of john he um, well he uh, He saw their trap, and he uh, springs their trap. And then Jesus goes on to tell a parable about uh, tenants in a vineyard, and it's very clear in the telling of the parable that these religious leaders belong to this class of wicked servants who have killed the prophets and who will kill the beloved Son. And so these religious leaders are, are furious and they really, they want to lay their hands on Jesus, but they can't out of fear of the people rising up in opposition. So this time Luke tells us they try a different strategy. They try to, to uh, as it were, go undercover. They send some spies to try to catch Jesus in his talk. They, they want to accuse Jesus of saying something that he shouldn't have said, and thus get him in trouble with the authorities. Now Mark, Gospel of Mark, tells us who these people are. It's two groups, Pharisees and Herodians. And when you hear that, you ought to think, Oh, hmm, that's kind of interesting, because these two two groups, they, they didn't run in the same circles. Uh, The Pharisees were a sort of lay-level movement, uh, conservative theologically, kind of, let's get back to the Bible sort of folks, whereas the Herodians, they they ran in in the elite circles. They had connections with the higher-ups, and they didn't generally agree with the Pharisees on all matters of doctrine and theology. But here they are in cahoots, working together because they have one shared desire, and that is to harm the Lord Jesus Christ, actually to kill him. Fascinating, isn't it, how the gospel brings people together? And the gospel brings us together in a positive sense. We say this all the time, that what brings us together as a congregation, it's not our Shared political views—it's not our shared hobbies, similar age, similar social status. What brings us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's also a negative sense in which the gospel brings people together in opposition to the Lord's anointed one. And uh, now these spies—they—they uh, they opt for flattery. Oh, Jesus. We we know that you are a straight talker. You don't duck a hard question. You're a man of the truth, and you're not concerned about people getting upset with your answers. Now, you speak the truth. Now, they don't mean it. It's true, but they're being insincere. And what they're trying to do here is They're trying to set Jesus up. They're setting their trap. They are going to ask Jesus a question, an either or question where either answer will get Jesus into trouble, either with the crowds or with the authorities. And so they're trying to to lay the foundation here, Jesus. Okay, when people come to you with a question, you don't beat around the bush. Isn't that right, Jesus? Now, here's our question. Should we pay tribute to Caesar? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no, Jesus. You see what they're trying to do. They're trying to place Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, And the dilemma is this. If Jesus says simply, yes, you've you've got to pay taxes to Caesar. If that's all he says, then the crowds are going to be upset. Because they, they hate Rome. Uh, Judea is a vassal state under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Uh, They want want a messiah, they want a political messiah who is going to overthrow uh, Roman rule. And so if Jesus simply says, yes, you've got to pay taxes to Caesar, then the crowds are going to be uh, disappointed and upset. He's popular with the crowds who at this point, are all hyped up with the possibility that Jesus is the political Messiah that they've been looking for. And so the religious leaders at this point can't touch him or do anything out of fear of an uprising or out of fear that the people might actually harm the religious leaders. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, you don't have have any obligation to Caesar. You don't have to pay taxes to him. You know, the people might like that, but I actually think this is why the Pharisees and the Herodians are the ones in on this. Because if Jesus says, yes, you have to pay taxes to Caesar, then here are these lay-level leaders, the Pharisees, who can start speaking to the crowds. Can, can you believe Jesus said that? Is that really the kind of Messiah that you want, one who's telling you to be subject to, to Caesar, On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, the Herodians can run right off to the authorities and say, "Uh, excuse me, we've got a problem here in Jerusalem. There's a popular man going around saying, we have no obligation to pay taxes to Rome. You better do something about him before he stirs up more trouble. And so when you look at this, it seems like there's no way out of the dilemma. Uh, But as we've already seen, Jesus is a master at springing traps, And so he says to the question. Should we pay taxes? It's a brilliant, brilliant move by Jesus. Anybody have a denarius? Can, can you show it to me? Now we actually know exactly what these coins look like. You can, you can Google it. Uh, archaeologists have found these coins. This is a Roman coin. And on, on it is a picture of Tiberius Caesar. who who ruled from, I think, 14 AD to something like 47 AD. And an inscription going around the one side of the coin in an abbreviated way says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the flip side of the coin, in Latin, it tells you that this Caesar is a high priest. So you can see why the Jews not only despised the tax, which was an annual poll tax, but they despised the the denarius itself because in their eyes it was blasphemous. Look at what Jesus goes on to say. He asks this question. Whose image, whose likeness is on here? And obviously everybody says, well, it's Caesar's. So then Jesus responds with this famous statement and render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God, what is God's. I think this one sentence has so much to teach us about our view as Christian Christians on God and government, our duty to civil authorities, and our duty to God. It's not going to tell you everything. It's not going to give you a comprehensive. Uh, political philosophy. It's not going to tell you how to vote and so on. What I think as we unpack what Jesus says here, we can, we can find at least five implications for our thinking about God and government. And that's what I want to do this morning is draw these out from this one saying of Jesus. So five implications. Number one, Christ teaches us to be subject to the governing authorities, even if we think the government is bad. Think about this. In a few days, Jesus is going to be crucified by the Romans. In a few decades, the temple is going to be laid to waste by the Romans. Um, During this century, the apostles are going to be put to death in the Roman Empire and in the years following, hundreds if not thousands of Christians will be killed for their faith in the Roman Empire. Now let's be be fair and balanced here. Uh, The Romans were not Nazis. They were not systematically seeking to wipe out all Christians. It's just that if the Christians were a problem, they dealt with the problem. If they had to get rid of Christians at times, they were okay with getting rid of Christians. If they thought Christians were disturbing the civil peace, well then, we better get rid of them. The Roman Empire, they also did some good things. They also persecuted Christians and insisted on worship of the emperor. So I think, and I'm hoping today's sermon will spur on some discussion for us later today. I think it's safe to say that no matter how dissatisfied you are with American politics or American politicians, or if you dislike whatever level of government from the president to the congress to the governor to the mayor or whatever, it's pretty safe to say that Rome was worse. And yet Jesus says, pay your taxes. Caesar's face is on the coin, give him the coin. Uh, He has a right to collect, so pay the denarius. And This corresponds, of course, with what Paul has to teach in Romans 13, where he makes the same point. Paul Paul says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So what's Paul saying? Give what is owed. If honor is due the authorities, give honor. If taxes are owed to the authorities, pay taxes. Don't leave out what you owe. That's how we are subject to the authorities. So even if you think, man, <laughs> The government is so corrupt and the government spends money in so many stupid ways. You know, and with the trillions and trillions of dollars, I, I, I think it's also safe to say that there are probably ways that money is being spent that you disagree with or you don't like. And therefore, some Christians jump to the conclusion, you know what? Because of that, I, I don't have to pay taxes because some of that is going to this but I think it's just worth noting that Jesus and Paul don't use that logic here. They say your obligation is to pay taxes. That's your ethical responsibility, to be a good citizen. You are not culpable for how the money is spent. Now, you know, one of, we, we need to think about this in our own political context, because ours is very different from the Roman Empire. One of the goods of living in a democracy is that you can try to have some say in how the money does get spent. And individual citizens and institutions certainly have a right to do that. This is the the first implication from Jesus' words. Be subject to the governing authorities, even if you think that authority is bad. Caesar has a tax, pay the tax. Implication number two. Governments have legitimate authority even when they exercise that authority poorly. Now, this is just following from the previous implication, but I want us to think it through a little bit more. The reason Christians are subject to the governing authorities is because God has instituted human government. It's it's never perfect in a fallen world. In fact, in a fallen world, it's often tragically imperfect and, uh, and wrong, And we should, I I suppose, we should insert here that there are occasions when a government can become so corrupt and unrighteous that those who are in the proper positions have a moral obligation to step in to make change and perhaps even remove certain people from office. But that's a discussion for another time. We need to recognize this general principle that having a government is a blessing. I never thought about that. (laughs) But it is. Having a government is a common grace gift of God to human beings in a fallen world. Just think about for a moment what happens in a society when a government collapses or a government begins to fail. I mean, it's mayhem. It's chaos. Uh, looting breaks out riots break out because there are no longer any structures in place to restrain the evil of the human heart you know it's only frankly the immature naive and foolish university student who says give us anarchy get rid of the government and it's those same people who maybe two decades later are having kids and saying we need more government (laughs) give us more rules See, what we recognize as Christians is government is a gift of God in a fallen world, that there be some semblance of law and order in society. So we must remember, no matter how frustrated we may be with the dysfunction and even unrighteousness of a government, that God has instituted it for a good purpose. Listen to Paul again in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So it's God's idea. And we're told in the New Testament to, to pray for our rulers, to pray for their good, because their good is for our good. Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he, uh, he writes... Uh, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now in context there, Paul is speaking about the corporate gatherings of the church. And he is saying that a regular part of the praying of God's people should involve Praying for civil officials, civil rulers, leaders, presidents, judges, and so forth, governors. That should be, that's one of our responsibilities when it comes to the prayer life of our church. So we pray as well, what Paul goes on to say is we pray that we might have quiet, dignified lives. Pray that they would maintain order, that they'll punish wrongdoing and uphold the rule of law so that we will be able to live a quiet life. A godly life in obedience to God. So we pray. And I think we also need to recognize that as Christians, we ought to be leading the way here in regard to honoring and respecting civil authority. No matter matter how much you have disagreements with whatever level of government, Christians ought to be leading the way in showing respect. In honoring those whom God has placed over us. I think it's sadly true, though. We don't have to think very hard on both the right and the left among confessing Christians to see examples of those who are not showing honor to those who are in authority over us. And again, so many qualifications are needed today to be careful. So that things are not being misunderstood, of course, there's a place to voice our disagreement, to make register our opinions and to do it strongly at times. but there must always be honor to whom honor is due because authority has been instituted by God that 's implication number two, implication number three and this this implication is is uh, Uh, somewhat more general, based not only upon what Jesus says here, but on his his broader teaching. Here's what I want us to think about for a moment. Citizenship in the kingdom of God is not tied to any one earthly kingdom. Citizenship in the kingdom of God is not tied to any one earthly kingdom. Now, follow this through with me and see if you can get why I'm, why I'm saying that when jesus says give to caesar what belongs to caesar he's effectively saying you can be part of a nation a citizen of a country part of a part of an empire that does not formally worship the one true god because true religion is not bound up in any one country or nation the kingdom of of God that Jesus is building is transnational, transcultural. It is, in his own words, not of this world. And so that means that we can live as good citizens and subject to governing authorities that do not align themselves with the one true God and at the same time know that we belong to another kingdom that transcends our earthly citizenships. Uh, Just listen to what one pastor theologian says about this passage. He says, Jesus' approval of paying taxes to Rome was revolutionary. By this, he shows us that the legitimacy of a government is not determined by whether it supports the worship of the one true God or even allows for it. By Jesus not requiring those who would follow him only to support states which are formally aligned with the one true God. Jesus unhitches following him from any particular nation. And this is why we can say that the church is international. And you might be wondering, what's Jared going on about here? I think think we need to be very, very clear about this. If some of you, I know some of you have had the opportunity to to travel to other parts of the world, so you may be more familiar with this than the rest of us. But there is a very big misunderstanding in the world today that Christianity is a Western religion or that Christianity is an American religion. In fact, you may know that many people in other countries get their understanding of what Christianity is by looking at American culture. And if that's the case, then, well, they don't have a very good understanding of Christianity, do they? We need to be loud and clear about this. Christianity is not bound to any one nation or people group. Let's be clear about this, too. I love the United States of America. There is no other country that I would rather belong to as a citizen. But America is not the new Jerusalem. So just just knowing a little bit about church history, you know, past, present I think would help us understand this, this point. So just think through a few things with me here. Where did Christianity get started? Not Johnstown. <laughs> it got started in the Middle East. And you know during the, uh, the first centuries, you know the gospel made its way up to Rome and into parts of Western Europe. But do you know where there was a stronghold of Christianity at that time? There was a Christian stronghold in Turkey, of all places. A place where seven letters of revelation went to. Many of you know the name Augustine, one of the early church fathers. One of the most significant theologians in the history of the church. He was a bishop of North Africa. And you know what his skin color would have been. Did you know that in the last 100 years... That the geographical center of Christianity is increasingly shifting from the north to the south and from the west to the east. So that there are now more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in England. And there are more Presbyterians And Brazil and Korea than there are in the United States of America. And there are actually missionaries now being sent out from places like Korea. And the Philippines and Africa. And they're coming to America and to England saying these people need the gospel. And so the church is international. And we need to know this from Jesus. You you don't need to be an American. And you do not have to deny or disown your country. In order to follow Jesus faithfully. The promise. Think, think about the promises of scripture. The promise given to Abraham. Is that he would be the father of many nations. The picture is in, in Revelation chapters 5 and 7. Is many people of different tribes and tongues and peoples. Gathered around the throne. And you can, that means you can be from any country. And worship and follow Jesus. Because the kingdom of Jesus is not tied to any one kingdom in this world. I'm wrestling if I want to go somewhere or not in application. That, I think, without getting into hot water here, means that our corporate gatherings, you know, if, if, somebody, if somebody came into our worship service, into our fellowship. And we we ask them, what is it that brings us together? I'm not disrespecting the American flag in any way whatsoever, but it's not the American flag and what it stands for that brings us together. It's Jesus Christ that brings us together. It's not a certain political allegiance, it's not a particular national citizenship that brings us together. Because the kingdom that Jesus is building is transnational and transcultural. And I hope that in the way that we fellowship, the way that we worship, the way that we live together as a church communicates that reality. That citizenship in the kingdom of God is not tethered to any one particular nation or kingdom in this world. Let's go to the fourth thing here, and this is more germane To the text. Fourth implication is simply this. The state is not God. Just think about the second part of what Jesus says here. When Jesus says give to Caesar his things. And to God the things that are his. What's he doing? He's he's making a very, very clear distinction between Caesar and God. He's making it very clear that God and Caesar are not identical. Despite the inscription that's on the coin. You know, Tiberius Caesar, he, he might declare himself to be son of the divine Augustus, high priest. Jesus is saying no. Pay 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 Caesar his taxes, give give him what you owe, but he's not God. The state is not God. Now, you know, human human government, it's it's organized and it's run by by humans, but you know what tends to happen is people gravitate toward making an idol out of civil government. Now, that's happened throughout history in, in overt ways when you know emperors and kings have, I'm son of, uh, son of a deity, bow down and worship me. That sort of thing happens. It actually still happens today in some countries. But I think more often today, government can functionally become an idol when we begin to view it and see it as the solution to humanity's biggest problems. As the means to ending human suffering. As the, the great means to uh, getting people justice and so forth. Or maybe, maybe within our own circles it goes more like this in our thinking. you know, If, if, if we could just get the right person into office. Then everything would be okay in in America. Or, or if that person has authority, the world's going to come to an end. You know that's a, that's often I think how if you listen closely to how some Christians talk, and it's exposing an idolatry. But Scripture says yes, yes, government is for law and order, for upholding good and punishing wrong. So. Respect government, give honor to Caesar, pay your taxes, be obedient whenever possible, pray for your leaders, but know this for sure, the state is not ultimate. The government is not God. The state does not have ultimate authority. And so it doesn't matter what country you're from, whether you're from America or or, uh, Japan or South Africa, and on and on and on. Your state is not God. God is God. And here's the final thing, the final implication, fifth thing. You owe ultimate allegiance to God because you belong to Him. You owe ultimate allegiance to God because you belong to Him. So the the power of the state is legitimate but limited. Uh, Allegiance to country is good, virtuous, but our allegiance to country is never absolute. As Christians, we never say that you know, whatever our country legislates, that we'll obey no matter what. On the other hand, our allegiance to God is absolute. We see this principle running throughout Scripture. We see it with the Egyptian midwives. We see it with Daniel, who refused to Bow down and worship the state and insisted upon his freedom to worship the one true God. We see it with the three men in the fiery furnace to, who refused to do the same. And we see it stated clearly with Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, when they say, we're not going to stop preaching about Jesus just because you tell us to. We must obey God rather than men. And so that means if God and government come into conflict, you always obey God. Our allegiance to the state is limited. Our allegiance to God is not. But what I want you to notice then is the grounds that Jesus gives for this. Uh, in verse 24, And he's got this denarius, he's got this coin. Uh, whose, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Now the Greek word there is icon, where we, you can hear where we get our English word icon. And it's the very same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 1, when the Lord says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now you see what Jesus is doing. He's, He's leaving us to connect the dots here, but it's a master stroke from the Lord Jesus. What are the things that belong to Caesar? Taxes, paying honor, respect, our prayers. But what belongs to God? Oh, Jesus, I think I I think I see what you're up to, Jesus. Because when you mentioned that word image, it it made my mind jump back to, to the beginning of the Torah, that tells me that I have been made in the image of God and the image of God is written all over my life, inescapably. What does that mean? That means I belong to God. So what belongs to Caesar? Taxes, prayers, respect, honor, obedience, wherever possible. But what belongs belongs to God? You. All of you. Because his image has been stamped upon your life. And his inscription is written all around you. Caesar gets some coins. But God has a right to all of you. Because you were made in his image. You were made to reflect him. You were made for him. You belong to him. Caesar gets some taxes. God gets you. And the basis of that is the reality that we as creatures have been created in the image of God. Meaning we owe our life to him. We owe our existence to him. And it means that we were made by God for God. You know, if I can, if I can put it this way, you, you're, kind of, you're kind of like that coin or let's take a penny. You know what happens if a penny gets thrown outside for a while when you, you discover, rediscover it after a few years. It's, it's all green and dirty, Kind of like us, apart from the redeeming grace of Christ, we've been tarnished by sin. But you are still worth something to God because his image is upon you and you belong to him. And so the only way to render to God the things that are God's is to give God your very self. It's not as though that the notion of the image of God only touches on one aspect of your humanity. The image of God is comprehensive to our humanity. It touches on every part of who we are as human beings, and that means God gets all of us. So we've got to ask the question, what are we What are we holding back? If, if it is a sin to Withhold taxes from the U.S. Treasury or the PA Department of Revenue, how much greater of a sin is it to withhold things from the one who made us and gives us life and sustains our very breath? You trying to keep back just a little? Maybe you've heard people, maybe you've heard people say, uh, you know, uh, I don't have to pay all of my taxes. I'll pay some of them. They'll, they'll never know. Do you know who knows more about you than the IRS? God. And you know who's better at collecting than the IRS? God. And you know who gives and gives and gives and gives more than the IRS? God. You belong to him is what Jesus is teaching us here. And to be to be truly human in the deepest sense, in the deepest biblical sense... Is to give your life entirely to God. Because you were made in his image. Created to reflect his likeness in his world as you serve him. That's our purpose in life. But sin, you see, has distorted us. Tarnished and even hidden that image. And so my invitation as we close This morning is simply this. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Who is able to redeem and to restore in you the image of God. So that you are able by grace to render the things that belong to God. Give God his coin. Which means to give him your very self. Let's pray.